0: News Brief brought to you by the International News Net.
1: A task force commissioned by the Council on Foreign Relations called for Barack Obama to scale back the Afghan war Friday. The influential think tank urged Obama to stay with his initial drawdown deadline of July 2011, which earlier this week was extended to 2014. The think tank cited the slim likelihood of a U.S. victory and the burden of the war on the country's weak economy.
2: As the world's leading anti-piracy experts met in London Friday, Somali pirates seized a chemical tanker in waters close to India. The International Maritime Bureau said a strong foreign naval presence has led pirates to move further away from Somalia's coast. Earlier this month, Somali pirates received $12 million for the release of two ships. Ship hijackings hit a five-year high in the first nine months of 2010.
1: Health insurance profits are skyrocketing, and the outgoing chairman of the House Subcommittee overseeing health insurance companies wants them to return the profits in the form of reduced premiums. Representative Pete Stark, chairman of the Ways and Means Health Subcommittee, says, quote, Your 10 firms have reported over $9.3 billion in profit for the first three quarters of 2010, adding, on average, your profits have gone up 41 percent from
2: last year. George Bush's recent admission he authorised the use of waterboarding and that he would make the same decision again has caused widespread outrage in the legal profession. Chris Anders, a senior attorney with the American Civil Liberties Union, said, quote, everything in our legal history makes waterboarding a crime, yet Bush doesn't seem in the least concerned about the consequences of what he is confessing to. Jonathan Haffetz, a professor at Seton Hall University Law School, believes, quote, the U.S. government's failure to hold accountable those responsible for torture constitutes one of the darkest legacies of our era.
1: Newly published DNA tests reveal a Texas man was executed in 2000 on the basis of a hair sample that did not belong to him. The results were published by the Texas Observer, which had fought a three-year legal battle to gain access to the DNA evidence, which showed Claude Jones had been, quote, excluded as the contributor of this questioned hair. Jones had insisted that he was waiting in the car when his accomplice killed Alan Zillendagger during a 1989 liquor store robbery. Jones was convicted of murder and denied several appeals on the basis of that single strand of hair which police found at the scene. Microscopic hair analysis was later abandoned after it was deemed inconclusive and obsolete with the development of a DNA testing. Jones requested a DNA test and a stay of execution until it could be performed, but he was denied by then-Governor George Bush.
0: This news brief brought to you by the International News Net. You are listening to the Rule of Law Radio Network at ruleoflawradio.com. Live free speech talk radio at its best.
4: let die good evening And welcome to Live and Let Live on the Rule of Law Radio Network. It's Sunday, November 14th, 2010, and I'm Gary Johnson. You can hear this program every Sunday night at 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, 8 Central, 7 Mountain, and 6 Pacific. Archives of this program are available at ruleoflawradio.com. Well, on tonight's program, in our second hour, we're going to be talking with Stephen uh, Kinsella. He is uh, the General Counsel with Applied Optoelectronics. Uh, he is the editor of Libertarian Papers at the Cato Institute, and he's director of the Center for the Study of Innovative Freedom. Uh, he is a, a Libertarian writer, and he is a patent attorney, and he's a very interesting person because he actually is a patent attorney who is a critic of patents. Uh, he has written extensively on the subject of intellectual property which he uh, says really isn't property at all and he questions whether uh, intellectual property should be treated as uh, property Uh, and we hope to be uh, talking with him uh, shortly Uh, at this time we were uh, scheduled to be talking with adam kissel vice president of programs of fire that's the foundation for individual rights in education Uh, their uh, website is thefire.org. And uh, they are an organization that uh, defends the rights of college students against, well, I guess you would call it um, political correctness run rampant. Uh, Fire is an organization that was uh, founded in uh, 1999. Um, and uh, it was founded by actually by Alan Charles Kors, who was a professor of history at the University of Pennsylvania, and Harvey A. Silverglade, an attorney in Boston, they had written a book uh, in the 1990s called The Shadow University, The Betrayal of Liberty on America's Campuses. And they were pointing out that there seems to become some uh, double standards and uh, uh, sort of... Uh, it seemed like students just didn't have any rights on campuses anymore. this was due to the proliferation of speech codes and uh things that in which uh, you as I say had to be politically correct and it wasn't just uh, that students who weren't politically correct were uh harassed, but it was also that students who weren't politically correct could face fines uh they could even be expelled uh for uh, uh, uh Running uh, across the uh, college administration, and uh, they were getting into all kinds of uh, trouble on things that, uh, in some cases, seem kind of uh, silly. Well, in in the end, uh, FIRE was founded, and they've been fil- filing uh, lawsuits. They have a very high success rate in winning these lawsuits against these speech codes, and they've uh, challenged. Uh, Uh, They report 72 unconstitutional or repressive policies on college campuses uh, around the country uh, and have scored uh, more than 140 victories in which they have uh, struck down these various uh, speech codes and other restrictions on uh, college students. Uh, FIRE publishes a guide to student rights on campus. Uh, which uh, informs students of their rights, something that the uh, college administration, of course, uh, wouldn't do. And they maintain a database of um, various uh, uh, colleges, uh, ranking them on how uh, well they do in providing campus freedom. Uh, They also have a campus freedom network in which they uh, try to bring faculty members and students together in defending uh, individual rights. Uh, Well, I was hoping to talk to Adam Kissel, the uh, vice president of uh, programs for FIRE, but uh, we don't seem to have him on the line yet, so I'm going to uh, tell you a little bit more about FIRE, and then hopefully we will be able to talk to uh, Stephen Kinsella, uh, who is going to be with us in our second hour. Uh, we are live on Sunday, November 14th, and if you would like to uh, call in and comment on uh, campus uh, uh, political correctness, or if you'd like to comment on anything at all, the number is 512-646-1984. That's 512-646-1984, and uh, we'll take your phone calls, and uh, and you can basically comment on anything you want to, although. Uh, Tonight, we are planning on talking about the uh, situation on college campuses involving speech codes, involving uh, political correctness, involving uh, all sorts of, I guess, horror stories that uh, have uh, been coming along these days. Uh, Last weekend, I actually heard Adam Kissel give a speech at the Students for Liberty conference at the University of Texas, and he was telling several stories about how... Uh, at various uh, college campuses, the uh, students just don't seem to have any rights. And in some cases, the uh, meanness, I guess you would call it, of the uh, administration can be breathtaking. I remember in particular he told a story about a student who uh, opposed the uh, construction of a uh, parking garage. He was uh, an environmentalist, and he put up some... uh, posters saying that he didn't want these, there actually were going to be two matching parking garages or two new parking garages on this uh, uh, college campus, but I'll just refer to it as a parking garage. He put up these uh, leaflets and posters opposing the construction of these, uh, of this new parking garage. Well, it turned out that the college president had gone to a lot of trouble to build the uh, parking garage. It was going to be his legacy. He was finally going to do something about the uh, parking problem, and he didn't like that student criticizing him, and the uh, college pref- uh, president actually got the student expelled uh, for that uh, reason. Uh, and uh, when eventually what happened was that uh, fire came to his defense, and uh, they were able to uh, 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 protect him. Well, I, I believe that our, uh, our second hour's guest, uh, uh, Stephen Kinsella, is here. So uh, in a moment, I, I hope that he will be up on the line and we'll be able to talk with him. Uh, Stephen Kinsella is uh, actually a multi-talented uh, person who uh, uh, edits the uh, libertarian papers uh, for the Cato Institute. He'll be telling us about that. And he's director of the Center for the Study of Innovative Freedom uh, and their website is the letter C, the number 4, and the letters S-I-F dot O-R-G. But uh, the one thing I guess he's best known for is writing and commenting on the subject of intellectual property. Uh, he is uh, actually a registered patent attorney and, and an author in Houston. And uh, <coughs> so I find this to be particularly interesting that he can explain this to us. But Stephen Kinsella is actually a, uh, a critic of uh, patent laws, and yet he is a patent attorney. And so um, I think uh, we'll just, uh, I, can, I have to actually push a button here, so I'll do that. And uh, we'll put uh, Stephen Kinsella on the line here. Stephen, can you uh, hear me? I can, Gary. Hey, how you
3: doing? Glad to be here.
4: Great. I'm glad to have you here uh, a little bit earlier than scheduled. Uh, so, actually, uh, why don't you begin by telling us a little bit about yourself, uh, Stephen?
3: Home jobs Give me just a second here. Got a technical problem. Okay. Go ahead. Sorry. Sorry. Say that again.
4: Uh, can you just introduce yourself? Tell us a little bit about your your background and your career, and just who are you?
3: I am a uh, yeah. I'm an attorney here in Houston, and I'm also a libertarian scholar and theorist. And I've been a patent lawyer for about uh, 17 years, and I also have, uh, oh, for about 15 years, been uh, pretty much uh, against the patent and uh, copyright system for various reasons. I'm an adjunct scholar of the Ludwig von Mises Institute, and have written a a good deal of material on uh, libertarian theory and intellectual property-related topics.
4: All right, now... We're going to get into this in uh, some detail, uh, Stephen, but I want you to begin by telling us you are a patent attorney. What does a patent attorney do?
3: Well, so there are there are two types of patent attorneys. Uh, one is a patent litigator, and one's a patent prosecutor. We call it to be the patent prosecutor. You have to have a technical degree in some field like electrical engineering or something like that, which I have. Uh, and, you, 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 you know, you work with clients to apply for patent applications with a patent office, um, and the U.S. Patent Office in D.C. Uh, now, a patent litigator is just that you don't have to have a technical degree, but you just you, you sue in court. Now, there are other types of intellectual property attorneys, trademark and trade secret and copyright and licensing and uh, media law, those kinds of things. But a patent attorney usually is pretty technically specialized. And uh, you know, you represent clients who have inventions that they want to obtain government monopoly rights for.
4: Okay, so now, now I want to make sure I understand that you are a prosecutor category, is that right?
3: yeah, I, I'm involved in litigation as well, but, and I'm also a general I'm a general corporate attorney, so I do other types of law as well. but my specialty has been electrical and computer related software related patents. By some time i've worked I've, I've represented clients like intel and Lucent and general electric and companies like this
4: okay so i ask this because you're a guy who knows all about patents all right you you you're not just some libertarian theoretician who's just spouting off opinions although you may be that too but you are somebody who actually knows what you're talking about and yet yeah you know, and correct me if i'm wrong you have, uh, have you undergone a, a change? I mean, you, you began as a patent attorney. You still are a patent attorney. Yet, as I understand it, and correct me if I'm wrong, you are a critic of the concept of patents and copyrights. Am, am I right with it?
3: That's correct. I mean, it should be no more surprising than when you when you meet a tax attorney, like a libertarian tax attorney, who is opposed to the tax system. I mean,
2: okay.
3: given the existence of the patent law, there are clients who need a representation with a patent law system but i believe that you know basically my job is a waste it should not exist um, or my main job you know i i I've, I've kind of reduced it a little bit now this is not about me and i didn't get into it for this reason i mean i went into it for the money you know because there was yep. a demand for it and when the government institutes certain programs they will create a demand for certain types of jobs um, now it is true that there are a lot of people who have opinions about intellectual property who don't know a lot about it. All right. And
4: well, Stephen, I'm yes. going to uh, tell you we're coming up on a break here, and uh, we will continue this conversation with Stephen Kinsella, editor of Libertarian Papers and the director of the Center for Study of Innovative Freedom. Uh, you're listening to Live and Let Live on the Rule of Law Radio Network. I'm Gary Johnson.
5: Capital Coin and Bullion is your local source for rare coins, precious metals, and coin supplies in the Austin metro area. We also ship worldwide. We are a family-owned and operated business that offers competitive prices on your coin and metal purchases. We buy, sell, trade, and consign rare coins, gold, and silver coin collections, precious metals, and scrap gold. We purchase and sell gold and jewelry items. We offer daily specials on coins and bullion. We are located at 5448 Burnett Road, Suite 3, at the corner of Burnett and Shulmont, And we're open Monday through Friday, 10 to 6, Saturdays 10 to 5. You are welcome to stop in our shop during regular business hours or call 512-646-6440 with any questions. Ask for Chad and say you heard about us on Rule of Law Radio or Texas Liberty Radio. That's Capital Coin & Bullion at the corner of Burnett and Showmont, and we're open Monday through Friday, 10 to 6, Saturdays 10 to 5. That's Capital Coin & Bullion, 512-646-6440.
0: Are you being harassed by debt collectors with phone calls, letters or even lawsuits? Stop debt collectors now with the Michael Mears Proven Method. Michael Mears has won six cases in federal court against debt collectors and now you can win too. You'll get step-by-step instructions in plain English on how to win in court using federal civil rights statutes. What to do when contacted by phone, mail, or court summons. How to answer letters and phone calls. How to get debt collectors out of your credit report. How to turn the financial tables on them and make them pay you to go away. The Michael Mears Proven Method is the solution for how to stop debt collectors personal consultation is available as well for more information please visit ruleoflawradio.com and click on the blue michael miris banner or email michael at yahoo.com that's ruleoflawradio.com or email m-i-c-h-a-e-l-m-i-r-r-a-s at yahoo.com to learn how to stop debt collectors now
4: Listening to Live and Let Live on the Rule of Law Radio Network. I'm Gary Johnson. We are talking with Stefan Kinsella. Uh, He corrected me. I was mispronouncing his name earlier. It's Stefan. Uh, He is the uh, editor of Libertarian Papers, the director of the Center for the Study of Innovative Freedom, General Counsel for Applied Optoelectronics, Incorporated, and he is a registered patent attorney. Uh, in Houston, Texas, and uh, as we were beginning our conversation here, uh, Stefan was explaining to us that he is a patent attorney. He earns his living uh, in part as a patent attorney, although I think he earns it earns it more as a, an author these days. But he, as he explained it to us, uh, he is somebody who is uh, it, dare to say skeptical, maybe even hostile to the patent laws. It's something like a tax attorney who doesn't like taxes. Anyway, uh, Stefan, I you, I want you to explain to us your your uh, transition, if if that's the correct term. How did? How, for, I, I ask, let me ask you this: Why did you become a patent attorney in the first place?
3: Well, yeah, sure. I'll, I'll give you the uh, the sort of um, the the, uh, the summary version. Um, I was in law school in the late '80s, and I was a libertarian already. And I had read, you know, Ayn Rand and some other sort of uh, the default positions on intellectual property, and they they never quite made sense to me. But and I was in law school, and I thought about it more and more. But and when I went, when I started practicing, I was an oil and gas attorney at first here in Houston, and uh, and then I switched to patent law about a year or two into it because I have a technical degree and because there was an increasing demand for it, and for various personal reasons, I switched into that field, and I liked it, and I actually enjoyed it for a while. Um, but I started thinking more and more about it because I just wanted to solve this libertarian issue, sort of as a libertarian. And you know, I kept trying to find a way to justify intellectual property because I knew there was something wrong with Ayn Rand's justification for it and the others I had read. And now I was practicing it, and I, I thought more and more about it, and I kept, you know, I kept running into roadblocks. And finally, I, you know, I had an epiphany, and I realized, well, the reason I'm running into roadblocks is because I'm trying to do the impossible. I'm trying to justify something that makes no sense from libertarian uh, from a libertarian perspective. And so when I finally realized, well, actually there should be no patent copyright law, then everything made sense and fell into place. And so I've just been sort of refining and uh, that theory for about since about 1995.
4: Okay, now you have referred to Ayn Rand and I think that nearly everybody listening to this program uh, knows who Ayn Rand is, but I'm going to ask you uh, I'm not going to ask you who Ayn Rand is, but I, I want you to explain to everyone her views on um, copyrights and so forth, and I, I guess part of this uh, has to do quite bluntly with the fact that she was a writer, and it seems to me that people who are writers are really interested in copyright, and I think that's sort of affects their views on copyright. I,
3: I think um, that's part of it for a lot of the for a lot of the advocates. I think in Ayn Rand, and the reason I mention Ayn Rand is because a lot of libertarians, maybe my age or a little bit older, came into libertarianism through Ayn Rand's writings as as I did in high school, that right. kind of thing. Um and Ayn Rand happened to be very strongly in favor of intellectual property. Um I don't think it was because she was a writer, although that might have had something to do with it. I think it was because she came from Russia. Mm-hmm. and she hated the russian communist system so much understandably and she saw this new system here that looked so dramatically better to her the constitutional system and she basically gave a lot of leeway to the constitution she you know she so so there was i've even i've even read recently that there was you know the eminent domain clause which allows the government to steal private property for public use um uh which is unlibertarian, obviously, even though they pay compensation. Well, Ayn Rand actually initially was in favor of that because it was in the Constitution. So she was very much a positivist in the sense that, you know, she gave the U.S. Constitution a lot of weight. She learned from it. And there's, of course, a copyright and a patent clause in there. So I think a lot of the supporters of capitalism and the Western system and property rights, you know, they, they see that there's a patent and copyright clause and um, and they assume that that is part of the Western private property system. I mean, it's called intellectual property after all. Um, and so, you know, not everyone comes to the system through her, but um, but but that's basically you know the way it happened. And so, when I started reading it and thinking about it, I realized that it didn't make a lot of sense. Now, her argument is that you have property rights in things that you create things that you create. And this is her idea that you're, you're the owner of things that you create. and she, So she thought that, you know, this is why we have property rights in, 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 in property, and that this carries through towards intellectual creations as well. You
4: know, I should point out, I think I'm reading the right part. Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution says one of the powers is, quote, to promote the progress of science and useful arts, by securing for limited times to authors and inventors the exclusive right to their respective writings and discoveries. So uh, that's in the Constitution. Uh, And uh, I want to continue your discussion on Ayn Rand, but before we get on on with that, the Constitution says that the, the government should have patents and copyrights?
3: Correct. So Why not? So, well, the Constitution, <laughs> what the Constitution says is that the federal government has the power to uh, to protect uh, uh, artistic and scientific creations if they want to. So copyright and patent are authorized by that clause. They're not required by it. But okay. they're authorized by it if the government, you know, believes that it will encourage the creation of these types of works. Um so that is the the constitutional authority for the patent and copyright law, which were enacted soon after the Constitution was, was, was ratified in 1789. Um, now, that is sort of a, a utilitarian empirical argument. They're saying we're going to give a temporary monopoly to someone, which we know that sort of monopolies go against the grain of the free market. But we're going to do a temporary monopoly to incentivize people to do X, Y, and Z, things we want to have created. Now, this is, you know, 200-and-something years ago. There was not a lot of evidence back then that, that they were correct in their theory, that it would be worth it to do this. So it was sort of like a leap of faith. We've had 200-plus years since then to test it. And in the, in the meantime, all the studies that have been done, they almost universally conclude that the patent and copyright system either repress innovation and creativity or, or there's no measurable effect. So in other words, we have these gargantuan systems created by the by the uh, by the federal government that clearly restrict individual liberty, and that there's no proof that they do anything useful at all.
4: Okay, now Stefan, I want you to elaborate on what you're saying here. I think that to play devil's advocate, that you know people who defend patents would say something like, "Well, if uh, Thomas Edison didn't have a patent, he would not have." Spent all those hours uh, inventing the light bulb, and uh, without this promise of a you know benefit for at least whatever seventeen years, whatever it was, he wouldn't have done all that work.
3: Well, so there's a lot of problems with that line of argument. Number one would be, what's their proof that this wouldn't have happened or would have happened? In fact, a lot of the famous examples of these famous creators. Uh, were in competition with people that were simultaneously inventing things around the same time and they used their patents, either it distracted them from inventing other things or dist- or, or it uh, distracted them by letting them get involved in lawsuits against competitors mm-hmm. who would have come up with something similar at the same time. Um, and second of all, I mean, wh- wh- where is the optimal patent term? Should the patent term be 100 years? Should it be 10 years? Should it be 5 years? No one really seems to know. And yet they're all very certain that it should be non-zero. It should be more than zero, but it should be less than 20 or less than 50 or whatever it is. So you have these people with very certain opinions about empirical matters, and they have basically no uh, evidence behind it at all. Furthermore, you have to realize that copyright and patent are very new legislative schemes, about 200, 300 years old at most. Of course, patent originated in the what's called the Statute of Monopoly. Monopolies it was a, it was explicitly recognized that it was a monopoly grant by the crown in 1623 in England. And copyright originated in the Statute of Anne in 1709 and 1710. So, and, and and the purpose was censorship, to you know, to prevent people from using this new printing press thing to spread ideas that the government and the church didn't want to be spread. So, this is the origin of these things. And it's really hard for someone to argue that before 1623, or before 1709, there was no human innovation, no human literature, no human painting, statues, creativity, innovation, mathematics, art, science. I mean, clearly we had these things without it. So it's, it's, it's almost impossible to argue that we will have no creativity without IP law.
4: All right, we are talking with Stefan Kinsella, he is director of the Center for Study of Innovative Freedom. Their website is the letter C, the number four, S-I-F dot
3: Ten reasons to question the official story of the Oklahoma City bombing. Number nine, the extra leg. Former Oklahoma State medical examiner Dr. Fred Jordan had stated, We had eight people with amputated left legs and nine left legs to account for. Chief pathologist for Northern Ireland T.K. Marshall, who performed over 2,500 autopsies in his time, stated, There has never been an unknown victim. This leg belonged to a perpetrator close enough to the bomb or his body to be damaged, leaving only a left leg behind. Who was this person? Please go to OKCBombingTruth.com
6: beware the photocopier it could be reading recording and even passing judgments on the documents you copy i'm dr katherine albrecht and i'll be back in just a moment to tell you about new big brother office equipment that could be monitoring
7: your every word Privacy is under attack. When you give up data about yourself, you'll never get it back again. And once your privacy is gone, you'll find your freedoms will start to vanish too. So protect your rights, say no to surveillance, and keep your information to yourself. Privacy, it's worth hanging on to. This public service announcement is brought to you by Startpage.com, the private search engine alternative to Google, Yahoo, and Bing. Start over with Startpage.
6: The copy machine is broken, or is it? Perhaps it just doesn't approve of what you want to copy. Canon is rolling out Big Brother copiers, printers, and scanners with OCR capability that actually read the documents they process. Press all the buttons you like. If those machines spy forbidden words, they won't print. Canon's new printer lineup also tattles. Their machines can secretly record documents and email them to their masters. When linked with user IDs, detailed digital dossiers could catalog everything you print. These systems are geared for office use, but if we don't say i no now, they could easily find their way into libraries, local copy shops, and even our own homes. I'm Dr. Katherine Albrecht. More news and information at KatherineAlbrecht.com.
4: to live and let live on the rule of law radio network i'm gary johnson we are talking with stefan kinsella he is a patent attorney in houston texas uh, who is a uh, critic of the concept of patents as he explained earlier it's sort of like a tax attorney who uh, is opposed to taxes and he uh, was telling us about his uh his uh evolution uh, as uh, someone who became a patent attorney and then uh, began studying it uh, more. uh, uh, He learned how to do it in in, in law school, but then he started questioning what he was doing, and uh, he even questioned Ayn Rand. Uh, We'll we'll talk about the the, uh, perils of doing that, I guess. But he was uh, telling us a little bit about the history of uh, uh, patent laws, and uh, he was telling us about uh, a law passed in 1623 called the Statute of Monopolies and a law in 1709 which uh is uh, called the Statute of
3: Anne <laughs> That's right so, these these are the origins of the modern IP system there there's actually is I mean the history is actually fascinating um let, let me give you a couple of aspects of it I mean most people have this sort of uh, immaculate conception I don't know if you've read um Uh, Rothbard's critique of Nozick on anarchy and things like this, but he's got this article, The Immaculate Conception of the State, which criticizes Nozick for his view that we could have a a minimal state arise in a peaceful way. And Rothbard says, well, you know, (laughs) in reality, this never happened. You know, the government was always stealing and conscripting and murdering. And likewise, you have this sort of immaculate idea that IP is you know, this good government sets up this system to reward inventors and creators, and it was all, you know, sort of a, a just a, a benevolent thing the government did. Well, in reality, copyright arose in censorship. This is this is historical fact. Patent arose in the grant of monopoly privileges. This is also historical fact. So we have the statute of monopolies in 1623. We have the statute of Anne in 1709. Now, a couple of interesting facts about it is patents, what's called letters patent, the, the origin of patents, were used like in the late 1500s, for example, by, by the British crown to authorize actual pirates, which were called privateers, like Sir Francis Drake, to go around and steal from Spanish armadas and Spanish ships and things like this. So patents were actually pro-privacy in the beginning. And the perverse thing is that we now have the IP advocates, the patent advocates, the copyright advocates, pretend to be attacking pirates, right, like Pirate Bay, mm-hmm. when, when the truth is, in history, the real pirates, I mean, not pirates that you're, you're not afraid of, like the Pirate Bay guys who don't really do anything that harms you, but real pirates that, you know, board your ship and break things and kill people, rape people, things like this. They were authorized by the patent law. The other interesting thing is that what you had was you had censorship by the guilds and the church and the, and the, and the state prohibiting authors, when the printing press started evolving, from, prohib- from, from, from promulgating their own works. And so every now and then, you know, they would, uh, they, they would get the government to give them an exception. And so let them publish what they want to publish. So one reason the authors were in favor in the French Revolution, for example, in, in, the, in England, one reason they were in favor of copyright law as a statute was to give them the right to publish their own works. And one reason that inventors like artisans and craftsmen were in favor of these budding patent laws was because every now and then they would be used by the government to give someone the right to make something and sell it, despite prohibitions by local guilds and protectionist unions and things like this. So, actually, the origins of some of the patent and copyright laws were to fight state and church control of ideas and inventions and competition.
4: Now, I want you to go back, Stefan, because I'm I'm not sure I understood something you were saying. The uh, these laws they they had the effect of censorship. Was it? That they they was that the intent? Or oh, was it was it...
3: it was a literal intent. So what happened was before the printing press, uh, works could only be copied by scribes. You know, people actually hand copying things, and these were controlled by the tightly controlled by the church and by the by the guilds and things like this. So when the printing press was invented, um, so you had this uh, you had the stationers company, which was authorized by the crown in England. And they were given the authority to decide what could and what could not be printed with this new invention. Well, when that started getting out of hand, they, they passed the copyright law. I mean, so this is all having to do with the government trying to stop who could distribute ideas and to control it.
4: Okay. Now, you talked about pirates. Uh, and I, I got a little confused. Pirates good or pirates bad well,
3: see, the, the, well the word is the word is used uh, in a in a confusing way nowadays I mean yes. uh the original pirates were of course bad they're basically thieves and yeah. murderers and and rapists so of course they're bad now so so what the modern state does the want, modern
4: step I want sure. uh, the 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 king. Or the crown, the king or queen, was authorizing pirates to act as privateers.
3: Yeah, well, this was more of a British phenomenon. So, the, so the British crown, they the, in fifteen, I think, eighty-seven, was uh, there was a letter patent was given to Sir Francis Drake, as a as a good example, to go out. He was already a sort of a pirate. They sort uh-huh. of commandeered him, like the government does now with money and roads and, and things like this. And they said, "Look, we're going to authorize you to go out and be, become a pirate, but you have to give part of it to the government." So he he basically had legal
8: so He was a to
4: terrorist working for the state.
3: He was working for the state. He was he was yeah basically privatized. He as was long like as deputized. they got a cut
4: of it, they were okay with it.
3: Absolutely. So this was under the authority of a letter patent.
4: And uh, now, how did that relate to? I mean. I, because it seems to me the word patent somehow is is taken on new meaning or different meaning. How did Sir Francis Drake and other pirates, acting as privateers for the king or queen, what does that have to do with patents? I'm
3: well, so if you, so we think of patents now having to do with inventions. But what happened yes. was patents are sort of arbitrary grants of the of the of the crown. You know, okay. the king could be petitioned and he would grant a patent. It, a patent just means openness. It's like an open letter where he says, I'm the king, I'm decreeing that this guy has the authority to do the following. And so going out as was,
4: a pirate and, rob, and robbing other people, that was against the law. But the king said, You can do that as long as you give me a cut of your booty. And so that's what patent meant permission.
3: It meant permission, and, and sometimes it would be used for mercantilist reasons. Like the king would say, "You know, you're the only guy in this area that has the authority to make horseshoes." You know, so basically, it was it was protectionist. They would basically say, "No one can compete with you," and they would get, they would win the loyalty of these people this way. Okay, so you had all these people in bed with the state early on. So they would petition the king for a monopoly grant. Give give me the only right to sell horseshoes in this town. Okay, And so what happened was in the statute of monopolies, there was a lot of abuses. The king was abusing it. They, were getting, they, they, would, they, would, get, they would charge a fee for the application fee like we do now. Um, uh, they would get patronage and loyalty from these guys, and there was obvious abuses going on. And so what the parliament did was in 1623, they passed a statute of monopolies, and they said, listen, we're going to restrict this, the crown's granting of monopolies. We're going to restrict it. It's going to be by the parliament and some kind of bureaucratic system, and we're going to get rid of all these monopolies except for inventions. In other words, they they carved out one exception. So, but that, that sounded good to the average man or to you know to the to to the to the, to the to the to the layman to the people, and so they left in place this idea that only the inventor of the the original inventor of an idea he can apply for a patent for his idea, but all these other special grants. So the, the point is the original grant of patent powers by the you know the the original legislation was in a way a restriction of the arbitrary exercise of this by the government before, but it didn't go far enough it didn't go far enough in my opinion.
4: Well, that's very interesting. So it was here you had essentially this really terrible thing, and Parliament said, "Let's stop doing it, except in the case of inventions."
3: Exactly, and and then they they sort of democ- they, now they didn't completely democratize it. I would say that happened when America was formed. So they made it more bureaucratized, so that you didn't have to go to the king; you you sort of went to this bureaucratic agency. And then when when America was formed, it was fully democratized at that point in time, and of course. The you know the idea of democracy helps sell a lot of tyrannical ideas. You know the fact that you can vote and you're part of the government and you own it helps the government get away with a lot of things they otherwise couldn't get away with.
4: Okay, uh, we're, we're coming up on a break in about a minute here, uh, Stefan. So that was the statute of monopolies in 1623. Uh, so we had the pirates are now it's now just granting a monopoly. Uh, it's, it's kind of protectionism for inventors, uh, and uh, when we uh, come back, I want you to explain to us the Statute of Anne, sure. who apparently, is, which is apparently named after Anne. Uh, and uh, I, and I, I briefly, what is that?
3: Yeah, so the Statute of Anne was enacted. Uh, again, it was a, a result of a lot of abuses because of the. Um, um, the, the the censorship and things like this. And one of the reasons that some of the authors were in favor of the statute of Anne was because it it promised to give them the authority to decide when their own uh, when their own. Stephanie, ideas. I'm gonna to have
4: to uh, take a break and so you continue your discussion of the statute of the Anne after this uh,
8: commercial. stronger immune power, improved sense of well-being. How many supplements have you heard boast of these benefits? The team behind Shentrician believes that supplements should over-deliver on their promises, and Shentrician does just that. Shentrician utilizes the ancient healing wisdom of Chinese medicine in conjunction with the science of modern nutrition adaptogenic herbs serve as the healing component and organic hemp protein and greens and superfoods act as a balanced nutrient base plus centrition tastes great in just water this powder supplement is everything you'd want in a product and it's all natural visit centrition.com to order yours or call 1-866-497-7436 after you use Centrition, you'll believe in supplements again.
9: Attention, an important product from hempusa.org microplant powder will change your life by removing all types of positive toxins, such as heavy metals, parasites, bacteria, viruses, and fungus, from the digestive tract and stomach wall so you can absorb nutrients. Microplant powder is 89% silica and packed with a negative charge that attracts positive toxins from the blood, organs, spine, and brain. This product has the ability to rebuild cartilage and bone, which allows synovial fluid to return to to the joints. Silica is a precursor to calcium, meaning the body turns silica into calcium and is great for the heart. There is no better time than now to have micro plant powder on your shelf or in your storage shelter. And with an unlimited shelf life, you can store it anywhere. Call 908-691-2608 or visit hempusa.org. It's a great way to change your life. So call 908-691-2608 or visit us at hempusa.org today. hempusa.org
4: It's uh, Sunday, November 14th, and you're listening to Live and Let Live on the Rule of Law Radio Network. I'm Gary Johnson. We are talking with Stefan Kinsella. He is General Counsel of Applied Optoelectronics Incorporated uh, and Director of the Center for the Study of Innovative Freedom. Uh, he is also the editor of Libertarian Papers. Uh, he has a website. It's uh, www.stefankinsella.com. That's S T E P H A N. K I N S E L L A dot com, where he uh, blogs uh, frequently. Uh, his, uh, the organizations, the Center for the Study of Innovative Freedom, their website is the letter C, the number four, the letters S I F dot O R G. And also, you can check out Libertarian Papers at libertarianpapers.org. And he also uh, is with the Mises Institute. Uh, and their website is m i s e s dot o r g, and we will talk later about a, a course that he's teaching, uh, rethinking intellectual property history, theory, and uh, economics uh, that you can actually check out online. Uh, uh, Stefan, you were telling us uh, the history of how we got to where we are with patent law, and I, uh, for people tuning in, uh, Stefan is a patent attorney who is a critic of patents, and. Uh, We were getting to the statute of Anne, which is the, uh, uh, I I guess, amusingly named law from 1709. And before the commercial break, uh, Stefan, you were explaining to us uh, what that is.
3: Yeah, so this is the first modern copyright law. And um, it was enacted in response, like the patent statute, to a lot of abuses by the Crown and also partly in response to agitation by authors To control their own publications, because until that time, if you even wanted to publish your own book, you had to get permission of someone else, which we would view as censorship now or prior restraint by the government. You know, some guild or some, the stationer's stationers company in England, you know, or the church, something like that. I mean, basically, you can think about Galileo's persecution was basically a type of copyright persecution. I mean, he was trying to publish something that someone else didn't want published. So, you know, this is the problem with copyright, that it gives someone else the thought control, the idea over patterns of information. And so the statute of Anne was sort of the first modern copyright law, but the problem is it ingrained in the modern mind the idea that, you know, there should be some bureaucracy, some state system that institutionalizes the grants of monopoly privileges by the state, Um, And this goes hand-in-hand with patent privileges as well. So we have now this system where everyone is used to, if you have an invention, the government will give you a piece of paper that recognizes your property rights to this invention. If you have an artistic creation like a novel or a painting or a song, the government will protect your property rights in that pattern of information. Everyone is so used to this now, but they originated in fairly modern artificially legal concepts you know, created by legislatures of, of, of criminal states.
4: All right, now that's, you uh, know, that was then. Now, they, they don't do that still in England, right?
3: Well, of course, this evolved into the modern systems we have now, which is, I mean, a, a, after the Statute of Anne and after the Statute of Monopolies, you know, all these other governments had a lot of debates about whether we should have these things too. And of course, you, you have. Uh, uh, inventors' unions and groups, like this, pushing for it. It's just special interest legislation. And finally, they won the day. And so now we have basically every modern country has a modern patent and copyright statute, which are basically based upon these original mercantilist, protectionist, censor- censoring uh, or, or monopoly privilege-granting ideas. And so, yes, we have it worldwide now, and we have treaties, in fact. In fact, we have every, almost every day you hear of an, an abuse that's crazy. We have, for example, right now, we already have the World Trade Organization, which tries to make uniform patent and copyright laws around the world. Uh, we have this ACTA, this um, anti-counterfeiting treaty uh, being negotiated right now in secret, and it's scary. I'm telling you right now, it's scary, and I'm afraid it's going to pass. What it will do is it will impose on all the countries of the world American-style uh, digital Millennium Copyright Act provisions, which basically outlaw, make it illegal to possess certain technology that is that could be could be used to circumvent uh, copyright provi- protection measures. Um, we also have uh, bills being produced, uh, introduced all the time by like Senator Orrin Hatch and Leahy. Uh, trying to ban ISPs or users from the internet for life if they violate intellectual property laws. We see propaganda efforts all the time at the front of movies and on, uh, you know, service. You know, all these commercials and things like this, telling all the all the all the college students, hey, don't be you know, be cool, don't copy, which people laugh at because they know it's just propaganda. So this this is basically a war by the entrenched interests who have enlisted the state on their side to try to extend the term of their monopoly it's like mickey mouse you know mickey mouse keeps living a longer and longer life you know this is another interesting fact copyright and patent were originally about 14 years in term now this is a purely arbitrary number but do you know why it was 14 now, now it's now it's about 20 for patents and it's about 140 150 for copyright you know what? It's 14 years originally. The, the reasoning was that if you have an apprentice, it might take seven years to train one apprentice. Well, if, if the government gives you a monopoly on your, on your craft, if you have it for two apprentice terms, which is 14 years, seven times two, then you have time to sort of train your apprentice to learn your craft before you start having competition. So this is completely arbitrary and completely rooted in almost feudalist serfdom concepts. I mean, it's it's insane that we're still relying on these things.
4: But it was 14 years. How did we get from 14 years to whatever it is now?
3: Well, it's it's, it's the same process, um, you know, by which we have legislation that always gets out of hand. You have basically a special interest group that has a strong interest in lobbying the legislature, to increase to change the laws in favor of that group, and then the people that are harmed by it are diffuse and large, and they don't really—they're not organized, which is society as a whole. So basically, you can think of it as Disney versus the rest of the country or the world. So Mickey Mouse, every time Mickey Mouse's copyright starts about to expire, uh, Disney lobbies the hell out of Congress, and they extend the copyright term. I mean, the last one was a Sonny Bono copyright term. And unfortunately, he hit the tree and in, in, uh, when all he was skiing before he passed the law. You know, after he passed the law instead of before. But uh, you know, it's going to probably go up again with with all these laws. I mean, it's, it's um, there's no end in sight.
4: But you you said the Sonny Bono copyright term. I I don't know what that is.
3: Well, so this was uh, this was the last time the copyright law was extended back in the uh, I think the late nineties by another 20 years. So I mean the term every about every 20 years the term goes up by about 20 years.
4: <laughs> and, and and you've referred to Mickey Mouse several times. Uh, I assume uh, maybe I shouldn't assume this Mickey Mouse would have expired Mickey the whatever it is the trademark whatever on Mickey Mouse would have expired by now.
3: Yes, yeah, the copyright, the trademark uh, well, this is another, uh, you mentioned earlier my course I'm giving. The reason I'm giving my course is because there's a large confusion on the part of people who are interested in this topic on the distinction between trademark and copyright and trade secret and patent law. And mm-hmm. understandably so, because these are complicated legal topics. Um, but no, for Mickey Mouse, it's the copyright, not the trademark. The trademark can last forever, but the copyright is mm-hmm. what's going to expire. And, you know, every, every 15, 20, 30 years, we have a big movement in Congress to revise the copyright law. And every time they do it, they pass some kind of orphan works legislation or some kind of, uh, some kind of uh, grandfather legislation that basically revives the copyright of things that were about to expire or that have already expired, and they, they kick it down the can for a while. So in Mickey Mouse, that's an emblematic case that Disney, which is a big pressure group, Um, and has a big, valuable property in Mickey Mouse and other characters. Of course, they don't want their copyright in Mickey Mouse to expire, so they keep kicking down the road. Now, you asked about Ayn Rand earlier. Now, Ayn Rand was asked, why should... You know, we libertarians believe in natural rights. Now, natural rights last forever. You know, if I own a house, I can own it forever, unless I give it up, or I sell it, or I commit a crime, or something like that. But almost every advocate of IP, even even libertarians, say that it should expire at at a certain time. The problem with that idea is why? Why should it expire if it's really a natural right? And if it's not a natural right, then what the hell is it? And why should it expire at some kind of finite, arbitrary time? And how do you know what it is? So they make up these arbitrary rules, uh, you know, 17 years for patents, 100 years for copyright. Why not 90? Why not 170? Why not a million years? There's no yeah. reason, they have no reasons for these uh, distinctions. They and pull Stanley, them out of a hat, you, basically.
4: You made a specific reference to Sonny Bono, who was Sonny of Sonny and Cher, and mm-hmm. was later a, a Republican congressman yep. from California. Yep. Uh, what was his uh, particular uh, involvement?
3: Uh, I, you know, I don't know what, why he was in, I mean, he was in show business, maybe that's why he believes in copyright, but he was the actual sponsor of a bill that was called the Sonny Bono, I can't remember the exact name of it now, but it was, it, was, it, was, it was one of the famous copyright laws. It was in the mid-'90s, and when they, when they enacted that bill, they extended copyright term by over 20 years. Um, so that's one of the laws. Some of the other famous legislators who were big uh, uh, advocates of IP are, 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 are Senator uh, Leahy and also Orrin Hatch, the, the Mormon from Utah. Now, I don't know why, but I guess they have certain people behind them that are strongly, strongly in favor of the vested interest of the the the, the recording industry or Hollywood or things like this.
4: All right. Uh, we are talking with Stefan Kinsella, and he is a registered patent attorney in Houston, Texas, who knows a lot about patent law, the history of patent law. He's actually teaching a, a course at, uh, online at Mises uh, Dot .org called Rethinking Intellectual Property History, Theory, and Economics and you can learn more about that by going to academy.mises.org Mises is spelled M-I-S-E-S and he also has a website it is uh, Stefanconsilla.com. that's S-T-E-P-H-A-N K-I-N S-E-L-L-A .com And he is director of the Center for the Study of Innovative Freedom. Their website is the letter C, the number 4, the letters S-I-F dot O-R-G. We'll continue more uh, with him in our second hour. you listen to Live and Let Live on the Rule of Law Radio Network.
10: The Bible remains the most popular book in the world. Yet countless readers are frustrated because they struggle to understand it. Some new translations try to help by simplifying the text, but in the process can compromise the profound meaning of the scripture. Enter the recovery version. First, this new translation is extremely faithful and accurate, but the real story is the more than 9,000 explanatory footnotes. Difficult and profound passages are opened up in a marvelous way, providing an entrance into the riches of the word beyond which you've ever experienced before. Bibles for America would like to give you a free recovery version simply for the asking. This comprehensive yet compact study Bible is yours just by calling us toll-free at 1-888-551-0102 or by ordering online at freestudybible.com. That's free study.
0: This news brief brought to you by the International News Net.
2: Barack Obama's deficit commission sparked universal criticism Wednesday for proposing broad cuts to federal programs, but the National Commission on Fiscal Responsibility and Reform was also attacked because one in four employees are actually paid by outside entities, many of which have conservative biases about how to tackle the deficit. The salaries of two staffers, Mark Goldwyn and Ed Lawrenson, are paid by private groups advocating cuts to entitlement programs.
1: NATO oil tankers were torched in Pakistan Thursday, en route from the port city of Karachi to Afghanistan's Kandahar province. Militants have stepped up attacks on NATO supply convoys in Pakistan and Afghanistan over the past weeks, warning they will continue attacks on NATO supply trucks as long as unsanctioned drone strikes target tribal areas.
2: Secretary of State Hillary Clinton Wednesday condemned Israel over its intention to build 2,100 illegal new homes in the West Bank. Clinton said the U.S. and the Palestinians still believed a positive outcome could come out of peace talks, adding the U.S. would help the Palestinian government by providing $150 million to pay down debt and continue providing its people with basic services. Arizona Sheriff
1: Joe Arpaio An outspoken advocate against illegal immigration is currently being investigated by the FBI and the U.S. Justice Department for civil rights violations and abuse of power and is the defendant in a federal class action suit for racial profiling. A hidden computer database shows Arpaio misspent up to $80 million in funds intended for jail operations. The Maricopa County Board of Supervisors has subpoenaed 13 of Arpaio's employees and has asked Arpaio to turn over financial documents, software, and timesheets. The Department of Justice is investigating Arpaio's for accusations of discrimination and unconstitutional searches and seizures. Arpaio has refused to cooperate, and in September, the Justice Department sued him for refusing to hand over documents. In October, a court of appeals rejected Arpaio's appeal of a ruling mandating the county fix the conditions in its jails, which included overcrowding, rotten food, and lack of access to medical treatment.
2: A UN panel alleges North Korea has exported banned nuclear and ballistic missile technology to several rogue nations. The 75-page report, compiled for the UN Security Council, states North Korea is involved in, quote, nuclear and ballistic missile-related activities in Iran, Syria, and Myanmar, and that special attention should be given to inhibit such activities
1: stories visit innworldreport.net
0: you are listening to the rule of law radio network at ruleoflawradio.com live free speech talk radio at its best
4: second hour of Live and Let Live on the Rule of Law Radio Network. I'm Gary Johnson. It is Sunday, November 14th, and we are live. We are talking with Stefan Kinsella. He is uh, an author and also a patent attorney in Houston, Texas. And uh, he is a patent attorney who is a critic of the concept of patents, as he explained to us in the first app first hour. It's sort of like a tax attorney who doesn't like taxes. Uh, he is general counsel for applied optoelectronics. He is editor of Libertarian Papers, and he is director of the Center for the Study of Innovative Freedom. Uh, his website, his personal website is stephankinsella.com. That's S-E-L-L-A dot C-O-M. The website for the Center for the Study of Innovative Freedom is the letter C, the number 4, the letters S-I-F dot O-R-G. He uh, teaches uh, uh, online at uh, uh, Mises, the Mises Institute, and their website is M-I-S-E-S dot O-R-G. And he's uh, teaching a course right now called rethinking intellectual property history theory and economics and you can find out more about that by going to academy.mises.org uh Stefan, uh you, as we were coming to the break uh, on the uh, top of the hour we were talking a little bit about uh what's happening with uh, various uh, laws and even international treaties that directly affect people and in our conversation so far, we've really been talking about patents and copyrights as they apply to inventors and authors who get those copyrights. But when you started talking about the ACTA Treaty, the Anti-Counterfeiting Treaty, I forget what the A is for, Act, whatever, Agreement, I, it's trade, I guess it trade is. Trade Agreement, I think. Um, agreement. Uh, th- that, you know, that will affect people. <laughs> people, not those inventors. They're not people. But I, what I mean is, they're gonna, it'll affect everybody. It's going to affect you with your computer. It's going to have uh, the government spying on your internet service provider and preventing you from, you know, sharing files with yeah. other people. Explain yeah, that. Yeah, and
3: this is because um, um, this is also a result of the uh, uh, the the. Uh, the, World Trade, the WTO treaties that are trying to expand copyright around the globe, all these movements to try to sort of increase. See, what you have right now, here's what I think is going on. You have basically technology is improving, giving people more ability to evade copyright legislation and, and patent laws, but primarily copyright. So you have more scoff laws, more pirate bays, more things like this, So then you have the thrashing of these dying beasts, because I think they're dying, because they cannot continue their model based upon a state copyright law. So what they're trying to do is, it's just like the drug war. The drug war, every time it gets worse, they try to increase the penalty. They say, well, let's have the death penalty for selling marijuana. So, you know, analogously, um, there are proposals all around right now. They're, They're echoed in all these internationalized bills. For example, if you... Are accused, just accused of abusing some copyright uh, right on the internet more than three times. You can be denied internet access for life. Okay, without due process, things like this. So you have these increasingly desperate measures. I mean, there was just recently last week there was the third trial of this Jamie Thomas woman who was accused of copying 24 songs, 24 songs. And she was held to be liable to these companies for $1.6 million, like $60,000 per song. So she can't pay it. She's a single mother with you know, barely a job, and she's fought three trials by now. Um, but these companies are just in- increasingly trying to just have scare tactics, have good examples to scare people. I, I, they're going to lose eventually. I don't know how many lives are going to devastate before they lose but they're they're harming people on their on the on the way out.
4: All right. Now, uh, explain to people a little bit more about what the ACTA is.
3: So, this is a secret treaty that the US is spearheading, the uh, any counterfeiting uh, trade agreement I think it's called. There's a law professor in Canada named Michael Geist, G E I S T. If you just search his name, you'll find him. Um, who is trying to leak as much of this as he can. He's, he's really heroic about this. And this basically will impose American-style copyright and patent laws on the rest of the world. Because, you know, we're tw- we've been trying for 15, 20 years now to twist the arms of Russia and India and China to try to adopt our IP-type laws. And, you know, we, we American libertarians sometimes get too... Uh, sanguine about equating American-style laws with capitalism because, you know, America goes around the world trying to force countries to adopt American-style antitrust laws and income tax withholding laws and anti-corruption laws, Um, and we're among the worst, we're probably the worst in the world in extraterritorial jurisdiction of our tax laws and things like this. So we have to be really careful in trusting the word of our government in in that the laws that they're trying to force on other countries are really uh, compatible with capital, true capitalism. I think they're compatible with American-style capitalism, which is not real capitalism, not real libertarianism.
4: Something you just said there, Stefan, that really set off alarm bells. The anti-counterfeiting trade agreement is being negotiated. The U.S. is one of the Parties to these agreement, this negotiation, they're yep. putting together, in essence, a treaty. It may be called a trade agreement, and technically that may or may not be a treaty, but it really is a treaty. The U.S. if it is bound, if it agrees to it, is bound by it, and yet it's being negotiated in secret. Yeah, and we don't know what it says if it weren't for people like Michael Geist. Yeah, getting a hold no, of it it's, and it's, leaking I, it out to us. It's,
3: it's really scary because I see, you know, I see as a sort of an anti-IP activist that there's a movement, a strong movement against IP law. All the young people get it; they're really strongly against this. All the libertarians are now, libertarians are now starting to get it, um, and yet, despite all this, we might lose because of one fell swoop of a treaty. And partly this is because of America's power, of course, and our dominance and our hegemony in the world. And because of this horrible treaty power in the Constitution, which I'm I'm not a conspiracy theorist. However, it is true that there is a supremacy clause in the Constitution which says that, you know, if a a, a treaty is duly enacted, it has the force of law, and it's the supreme law of the land. And the treaty doesn't require the normal ratification process that other laws do. Um, and in fact, the, the president has co-opted this with what's called executive agreement. You know, the president, if he wants to, can just sign an agreement on his own authority and say, this is equivalent to a treaty. Um, now, there actually was, if, if your readers want to look it up or your listeners want to look it up, there was something called the Bricker Amendment in the 50s or the 40s, which almost passed the Bricker Amendment. And it would have restricted the the, the, uh, the treaty authority of the Constitution because there was a big concern by the anti-communist, the sort of McCarthyite types in the 50s. Um, but it failed narrowly, unfortunately, because uh, it, it, I wish it would have passed because it, it poses a big threat to us right now.
4: Well, can you tell us, uh, as I understand it, under ACTA, A-C-T-A, the The Government or actually they could be able to monitor your internet service provider and make sure that you're not you know doing certain things. You already said that uh, if somebody is accused three times, they could be banned from the internet permanently. This is not just theoretical, I think in at least some European countries, this is already happening. Right? yeah,
3: no, this is happening. this is this is what's really scary. and and this new law that Leahy's proposing would be targeting ISPs, Internet service providers, even uh, even the ones that don't have jurisdiction in America. Um, and this is, again, another example of America's, um, you know, American, you know, we, we have the most libertarians here, so sometimes we're a little bit naive about how bad our country is. Um, legally and internationally, we are among the worst in the world in terms of tax law, antitrust law, things like this, and exerting our jurisdiction outside of our borders. And, you know, what they will do is they will just say, look, we have jurisdiction over this domain name, which is outside of America, and we're going to tell them to shut down, or they have to comply. And this is compounded by the fact that, you know, the Internet was founded by DARPA, a mm-hmm. military organization, and and it's headquartered by the ICANN, which is here in California, which I have no doubt is heavily controlled by monitored by the, the, the United States government. So, you know, the entire Internet, which the entire world sort of, you know, depends upon, is controlled by the, the United States government. I mean, they have a lot of control over that. And they will use that, plus their extraterr- extraterritorial assertion of jurisdiction, to control companies even outside the U.S., to make them comply with U.S. standards and U.S. laws.
4: Uh, we're going to come up on a break in a couple of minutes here, uh, Stefan. Uh, uh, regarding uh, ACTA, I want to kind of finish up the conversation on that. Uh, I guess the Electronic Frontier Foundation, is are they the best place to get information on that? Or
3: EFF, EFF is good. Um, I, do, I do like them. I mean, from my personal libertarian perspective, they're not quite radical enough, but yes, they're <laughs> very good compared to the, uh, the mainstream. They have a lot of good information on the ACTA.
4: Okay, uh, and uh, this is something we really need to keep track of. And in, in the United States, we have the Digital Millennium Copyright Act already. Is that a similar threat? Yeah, so,
3: so the, the, we call it the DMCA here. Okay, and the DMCA. Now, there's actually a couple of good things about the DMCA, but they're they're just by luck or accident. When this was enacted in the mid 1990s, you know, the Congress did not really realize how it would play out. So they have a couple of safe harbors in there. And one of them is this safe harbor for ISPs. So an internet service provider who is passive in the mm-hmm. sense that they don't really encourage you to, you know, their users to to uh, to post works online that violate copyright law or defamation law, slander, libel law, things like that. As long as they're not actively involved in it, they're they're exempt. Now, I'm telling you the big media companies hate this law because they've tried to bust it many times, but this safe harbor is relied on over and over again by these companies. And I'm telling you, if Congress knew what they were doing, they wouldn't have enacted that, and they wouldn't they wouldn't reenact it right now. But the DMCA, DMCA provisions are poised to be reenacted on a, on a global scale because of the act right now.
4: All right, we're talking with Stefan Kinsella. You're listening to Live and Let Live on the Rule of Law Radio Network.
11: Capital Coin & Bullion is your local source for rare coins, precious metals and coin supplies in the Austin metro area. We also ship worldwide. We are a family-owned and operated business that offers competitive prices on your coin and metals purchases. We buy, sell, trade, and consign rare coins, gold and silver coin collections, precious metals, and scrap gold. We will purchase and sell gold and jewelry items as well. We offer daily specials on coins and bullion. We're located at 5448 Burnett Road Suite 3, and we're open Monday through Friday, 10 a.m. to 6 p.m., Saturdays, 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. You are welcome to stop in our Shop during regular business hours or call 512 646 6440 with any questions. Ask for Chad and say you heard about us on Rule of Law Radio or 90.1 FM. That's Capital Coin and Bullion 512 646 6440.
9: It is so enlightening to listen to 90.1 FM, but finding things on the internet isn't so easy, and neither is finding like-minded people to share it with. Oh, well I guess you haven't heard of Brave New Books then. Brave New Books? Yes. Brave New
4: Books has all the books and DVDs you're looking for by authors like Alex Jones, Ron Paul, and G.
9: Edward Griffin. They even stock Inner Food, Berkey Products, and Calvin Soaps. (laughs) There's no way a place like that exists. Go check it out for yourself. It's downtown at
4: 1904 Guadalupe Street, just south of UT.
9: Aw, by UT, there's never anywhere
7: to park down there.
4: Actually, they now offer a free hour of parking for paying customers at
9: the 500 MLK Parking Facility just behind the bookstore
7: it does
8: exist but when are they open
9: monday through saturday 11am to
4: 9pm and 1 to 6pm on sundays so give them a call at 512-480-2503 or check out their events page at brave new bookstore.com Welcome back to live and let live on Sunday, November 14th. I'm Gary Johnson. We are talking with Stefan Kinsella. He is a registered patent attorney and he is someone who has written a great deal and spoken publicly a great deal on the patents and copyrights. He is someone who, as he explained earlier in the program, uh, thought a great deal about patents after he became a patent attorney and came to the conclusion that, I guess, uh, he says they don't make sense. And that uh, really there's uh, that intellectual property is not really property. And it shouldn't be treated as property. Property is something that you own and you own forever. And one of the main objections that he has to patent and copyright laws is that it's for a limited number of years if you really owned it. Then you would own it permanently. Uh, and uh, earlier in the program, uh, Stefan, I asked you a little bit about uh, Thomas Edison as an example of the, you know, would he have invented the light bulb if he couldn't have, uh, you know, had exclusive rights to the light bulb for a number of years uh, and then uh, made money, I guess, to recover the cost of his uh, research and development to invent the uh, light bulb? Well, you know, people who produce intellectual property whether it's writing a book or producing music or something they you know perfectly well they feel very strongly about this and they don't see things your way because you're talking about their livelihood and they want to recover the costs of their work and they say you know if i couldn't make money off of this why would i go to all the trouble to produce this yeah
3: Well, well First of all, uh, there are so many responses to that. I would say, first of all, I'm sure you, Gary, have heard many people that are on Social Security or that have paid into Social Security make similar arguments. They've said, like, well, you know, you know I'm entitled to it. I've paid into it, you know. Uh, and why would I support abolishing Social Security? Because I'm going to be entitled to this payment from the government. Well, it depends on whether you want to be ethical or not, whether you want to be moral or not. Um, I mean, if you want to get a little bit into the philosophy of, of what property rights are about, okay, property rights are not the right to control ideas. There's a famous... I mean, this, this debate has been going on for a long time. A hundred years ago, Benjamin Tucker, one of the famous libertarian intellectuals, you know, he said, if you want to, if you want to keep your ideas to yourself, keep it to yourself. But if you reveal information to the world... You know, if, you, if you, this is what competition is about, think. Just think about it. If you come up with a new innovation for your grocery store, let's say you think, "Hey, I'm going to make my aisles three feet wider, and the, the carts will, you know, get by without bumping against each other, and all these shoppers will love it." You know what's going to happen if it's successful? Your competitors, your competitors will emulate you. The nature of the market, the nature of society, is learning from each other, emulating. We learn things from society in general, and we learn things in part by being free to compete with each other. And that is what competition is. And when you, when you allow the government to come in and issue a monopoly over a pattern of ideas, you stifle competition, and you set up a, a monopoly system. And I really don't see any in-between way to have, to have it the other way. I mean, you, you have people say, well, you know, I created this. I should have the, uh, the right to license it or not. Well, a license means permission, okay? Mm-hmm. You only have the right to stop to not grant permission if you have the right to stop it. In other words, someone only has to come to you to ask permission to do something if you have the right to stop it. Now, why would – let's say Mozart comes up with a new symphony, and people learn about it, and they hear it, and there are other people emulating him. You know, maybe there's a new hip-hop group that's going to sample Mozart's new song and make a new song out of it. Now, how can Mozart license them the right to do that? Only if he can stop them. If he can stop them, he can say, I won't stop you if you pay me a certain amount of money. But how does he have the right to stop them? How are they violating his property rights by performing a song? Because there's a pattern. This This is a philosophical issue that libertarians face.
4: Stephen, let me ask you this. Let's say that Mozart uh, is alive today, and let's say that he made a song and he put it on a phonograph record, okay? And he sold the phonograph record. Mm-hmm. What rights do you have? You you have now bought the phonograph record. You obviously have the right to play it. I assume in your home. Mm-hmm. Do you have a right to make a copy of that? You know, an, a, another phonograph record and sell it, uh, or or make a, a a tape recording of it? Or, okay. Do
3: you well, understand the question I'm asking you? It's, it's hard to predict. It's hard to predict what what contractual regimes would be applicable in a free system. Yeah. I don't know what insurance companies would insist upon. I don't know what you would, what you, what you would sign when you, buy the, when you buy the CD, which CDs are disappearing anyway, so there's not any physical thing to buy anymore anyway. Um, but, you know, I would say this. I would say that um, if you're using your own property in your own house, how can you be violating someone else's property? This, this is the fundamental thing. Libertarians need to revisit why they're libertarian. We are used to thinking that we're pro-liberty, we're pro-commerce, we're pro-wealth. And, of course, generally, the, the right to own private property leads to prosperity. It leads to the free market, things like this. But that doesn't mean we have to mix up cause and effect. Okay, And I would say this. Uh, let's make an analogy to the free trade argument. Mm -hmm. Typically, we'll engage in someone who uh, wants to uh, condition uh, import taxes upon China or some other country lowering their barriers to trade. And and what's the typical libertarian response? The typical libertarian response is that we should have unilateral free trade barriers. We shouldn't impede any access to, you know, anyone should be able to export whatever they want to America regardless, and everyone is better off, right? Right. And what's, what's the logical implication of that? If someone could produce, you know, cars for a dollar apiece, we would all be better off. Now, it would put GM out of business, but we would all be better off. And people would fight that at first, but then, then they would get used to it. But the fundamental point is that the entire purpose of property rights is because of the fundamental fact of scarcity. If things were not limited in the world, we wouldn't need property rights. You know, if if I could look at your car, Gary, or your house, and I could look at it and just blink my eyes and I could have a duplicate copy on my property next to me, it wouldn't take your car away, wouldn't take your house away, but I would have my own copy. Now, I don't think we would have laws that would prohibit doing that. But now we do have those laws in the realm of ideas. In other words, in my view, we have to fight against, the, un, the unfortunate fact of scarcity in the real world of scarce things, but in the world of ideas, they are infinitely reproducible, and that is a good thing. People can learn from each other, we can all benefit from the common cultural wisdom of humankind and the, When we try to impose artificial scarcity on these ideas, we are trying to restrict them, and it makes no sense whatsoever
4: now Stefan uh You wrote an essay for the Mises Institute called The Case Against IP, A Concise Guide. And in there, you make a reference to carving something out of a hunk of marble. Uh, Is that relevant to what you're talking about right now?
3: Yeah, that's that's a good example because it it, it is not too uh, esoteric. Here's the idea. If you talk to your average person or your average libertarian... And they, they sort of give it casual thought. You'll say, where do property rights come from? And they'll say, well, if you find something in the state of nature that's unknown, then, you, then you're then you the owner. Everyone agrees to that, although there's fewer and fewer of those things because, you know, the world is pretty populated by now. Or if you buy it from someone, you know, let's say Gary sells me, you know, um, a car. Well, I own the car because Gary owned it and he gave it to me. And then everyone says there's a third way. If you create something, that you become to own it. The the fundamental intellectual mistake there, in my opinion, is this. They make a mistake between understanding where wealth comes from and where property comes from. It is true that by your intellectual labor, your creativity, if you manipulate and rearrange things that you own, you make them more valuable. You create wealth. In fact, if you and I, let's say you own an apple and I own a dollar, and we trade them, Nothing is created, and yet wealth is created, right? We're both better off. So we have to keep that distinction in mind.
4: All right. Oh, right, I'll let you continue that uh, thought after the commercial break. We are talking with Stefan Kinsella. Uh, his website is Stefanconsella.com. You're listening to Live and Let Live on the Rule of Law Radio Network.
8: Come down and enjoy Austin's own piece of the Caribbean, right on the banks of the Colorado River. One Love Kitchen, jerk chicken and vegetarian food, 3109 East Cesar Chavez. That's 3109 East 1st Street, right next door to Planet K. Lunch and dinner plates starting at $5, you can't beat that. Serving the real thing, jerk chicken, vegetarian and seafood Saturdays. Monday through Wednesday, Friday and Saturday, late night with Emperor Sound Crew. Alright, also link up at onelovekitchen.net, that's onelovekitchen.net.
6: You've heard of hairspray, but how about DNA spray? It's a high-tech way to catch robbers, but down the road, it could be abused. I'm Dr. Katherine Albrecht, and I'll be back in a moment with what you need to know about aerosol microdots. Your search
7: engine is watching you, recording all your searches and creating a massive database of your personal information. That's creepy, but it doesn't have to be that way. Startpage.com is the world's most private search engine. Startpage doesn't store your IP address, make a record of your searches or use tracking cookies and they're third-party certified. If you don't like Big Brother spying on you, start over with Startpage. Great search results and total privacy. Startpage.com, the world's most private search engine.
6: Exploding ink can cover thieves in a profusion of purple, but nowadays they need to look out for spray on polka dots the size of pinheads too. The Selectamark security system uses DNA spray on robbers as they make a getaway. The coating glows under ultraviolet light for weeks, and police can identify the crime scene because the spray contains unique microdots. While it's currently used to nab criminals, the spray could be turned to other purposes. Imagine attending a political rally and later glowing under ultraviolet light at the airport. It could give a whole new meaning to the no-fly list. Maybe we should all be wary of DNA spray. I'm Dr. Katherine Albrecht. More news and information at KatherineAlbrecht.com.
8: It is
4: Sunday night, November 14th, and this is Live and Let Live on the Rule of Law Radio Network. I'm Gary Johnson. We are talking tonight with Stefan Kinsella. His website is StephanKinsella.com. That's S-T-E-P-H-A-N-K-I-N-S-E-L-L-A dot C-O-M. He is a patent attorney, a registered patent attorney in Houston, and... He is uh, someone who is actually opposed to the concept of patents. As he explained earlier, he's like a tax attorney who uh, opposes taxes. Uh, and uh, he explained to us earlier that he wasn't always that way, but he just got to thinking about it and decided that uh, he thought patents uh, didn't quite uh, make sense. Uh, and uh, before the break, he was telling us a little bit about. Uh, an essay he wrote called The Case Against IP, a concise guide, which is on the Mises uh, website, the Ludwig von Mises Institute website, that's M-I-S-E-S dot O-R-G, And he was explaining to us the concept that uh, if you uh, make something out of marble, uh, you, uh, you own the marble. But uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that you uh, own the shape of the carving or whatever out of the marble. Can you kind of continue with that explanation uh, Stefan?
3: Yeah, that that's a good example to illustrate the sort of confusion in the idea that we own things that we create. So you can just imagine and this this idea, this example helps to illustrate the fact that the only way to create wealth is with property that you already own. In other words, wealth creation always involves rearranging or manipulating or doing something with things that you own already. If you didn't own it already, the raw materials that you're rearranging, then you wouldn't have the right to do it. And If you already owned it, then you don't need a new property right to explain why you own what comes out of it. So, you know, you can just take a simple example, a statue or a sword or something like that, If you own a piece of marble, okay, you own it because you you obviously didn't own it because of some creation because there's no statue yet. You haven't done anything creative. You just found a hunk of marble and you homesteaded it. So that is an example where ownership is not – shows that creation is not necessary to explain ownership. And let's say in the middle of the night your neighbor comes and he sneaks onto your property and he carves a statue in your hunk of marble – well, who owns the statue of Marvel? most, most people would, who owns the statue? Most people would say that you own it because you own the original material from which it was carved. So the creator of the statue didn't own it. So creation is not sufficient. So in other words, there's a common misconception that creation is a third way of coming to own things and it's actually not. Uh, the only way you can own things is if you find them or if you buy them or you know get them by contract from someone. You you really can't create anything. The only thing you can create is wealth. You can create wealth. I don't deny that. I don't deny the importance of the intellect or or the imagination or labor. But what these things do is they transform resources that are already owned. We transform them. So if you own something, then you decide to use your labor or your body or your intellect, and you transform it, and you make it into something different that is more valuable either to yourself or someone you want to sell it to. And in that way, you increase wealth. But you do not add something new to the world that is new, a new piece of property that we, we need to find a new owner for. We already know who owns it. The, the owner is the guy who owns the raw materials from which this new thing is made.
4: Now, I I may be kind of repeating myself here, uh, Stefan, but... People who defend copyrights and patents will say, "If we don't have them, then there won't be people carving the marble." Right. Um,
3: So, so 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 let me let me give a few answers to that. Number number one let's take the, the the typical i mean let's cut to the chase let's let's talk about the typical case people mention which is pharmaceuticals so we talk about all these drugs that pharmaceutical pharmaceutical companies make now let's think about the real world situation we have the united states federal government which extracts taxes on an astronomical level from individuals and from corporations it regulates the the hell out of companies um It has the FDA, which imposes draconian requirements on the ability just to sell a new drug. And so by the time a company finally gets a drug to market, yeah, it's it's faced a lot of costs. It's paid more for its employees than it needs to. It's it's, it's paid more because of regulations. It's it's paid taxes out of its own coffers. It's paid uh, lawyers and all these delays because of FDA regulations. And now does it make sense for a libertarian to say the solution to this problem is for the the same state that causes all these damages to the company to grant them a, a monopoly privilege that they can use to take to a federal court, to sue another company, to get an order by a federal goon, right, to get a slightly higher price for a product just so they can make up a little bit for all these damages that have been done to them? Why don't we just say... Let's get the federal government out of the way in the first place. I mean, no one in their right mind, no libertarian, can say the federal government should tax and regulate and do all these things and then make up for it by a small grant of a monopoly privilege for a product. So I would say this, and that, that's the paradigmatic case. I would say this. No one can argue that there will be no innovation and creativity without patents all you can say is there won't be enough i mean look everyone would admit that without patents, there would be some novels written there would be some inventions created in fact there were you know the greatest who's the greatest uh uh, 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 uh creator in the in the english literature by common acclaim is shakespeare okay. now he 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 came up with the, his ideas before copyright right so, in other words, we, and there's, there's been no one to recreate his, his greatness. So we can't say that copyright is necessary or essential for creativity. So but all I think- that these IP guys can say is that this, we won't have enough creativity. Now, do you know what this has led to? This is It sounds like a, an absurd uh, sort of a distortion of what they would believe, but they have literally said this. They have said this. Well, the monopoly price that they can charge, given the monopoly we give them, is not enough. We need to give them, we need to take tax dollars from the taxpayer and have a government commission, to have a government commission of experts who will give awards out every year to geniuses that the government thinks deserves awards. And you've even had libertarians recently advocate this, like an $80 billion dollar taxpayer-funded medical innovation prize award to, to replace or augment the patent system. This is what this reasoning leads to. I mean, there's no end to the amount of innovation that we're without if you have this, if you have this mentality.
4: Okay, now I'm going to challenge you here, Stefan. Many times in this interview, you have said that you are presenting the libertarian position. Okay, but you also acknowledge that there are people like uh, Robert Nozick, and I guess you can call Ayn Rand a libertarian. So my d- dispute, you know, she might say, "No, I'm not. I'm an objectivist." But whatever, uh, there, you know, there there are a lot of libertarian views on patents and copyrights. You present your view as being the libertarian view. So, uh, what sort of reaction do you get from? Other libertarians, because you're taking—is it fair to say a very radical position on this, and I would say a very uncompromising position on this? What sort of reaction do you get from other self-described libertarians to your position?
3: Well, to be honest, in the last, uh, I published a fairly major work on this about ten years ago in 2000 in the in the Journal of Libertarian Studies, and in the in the ten years, it's gotten a lot of uh, popularity and. Uh, Press, And I've I've given more speeches on it. I've given more radio talks like this on it. To be honest, this is not my favorite topic. I'm more interested in other things myself, but I keep getting, you know, called on to talk about these things because I have expertise on it and because it's a hot topic. And I'll be honest, from what I've seen, the libertarian movement has latched onto this with a vengeance. I mean, it is, it's like a snowball. So yeah, there are some people who resist, but I, I really believe there are relics of the 20th century or the 19th century. I mean, they're, they're they're a dying breed. The arguments I get are either empirical or utilitarian. They'll they'll say things like, "Well, what was What would be my incentive to produce if I didn't have this monopoly?" And and you want to say, "Do you really?" think that the purpose of of libertarianism is to establish a government that will give you monopolies to make sure you have the incentive to create? Do you really think that's what it's about? Or is it about property, rights, and freedom? Do you know what I mean? So um, the response I've seen is overwhelming, and I will be honest, I would love to see a good argument for IP. Just like Ayn Rand says she would love to see a good argument for for cat's rights. You know, she loved her cat Fluffy, but she could not think of a way to justify rights for her cat, so she gave up on it. And I was, it was the same for me. I mean, I'm a patent lawyer. I tried and tried and tried for 15 years, and, you know, every argument I hear is just completely uh, bereft of principle or, or awareness of what the, really, the law really is. And uh, I just think that th- the case is very clear and convincing for our side.
4: All right. Well, you're a very convinced man, Stefan Kinsella. And uh, we will talk a little bit more about this. We are talking with Stefan Kinsella. He is director of the Center for the Study of Innovative Freedom. Their website is the letter C, the number four, the letters SIF.org.
8: More energy, stronger immune power, improved sense of well being. How many supplements have you heard boast of these benefits? The team behind Shentrician believes that supplements should over-deliver on their promises. And Shentrician does just that. Shentrician utilizes the ancient healing wisdom of Chinese medicine. In conjunction with the science of modern nutrition, adaptogenic herbs serve as the healing component, and organic hemp protein and greens and superfoods act as a balanced nutrient base. Plus, centrition tastes great in just water. This powder supplement is everything you'd want in a product, and it's all natural. Visit centrition.com to order yours or call 1-866-497-7436. After you use Shantrician, you'll believe in supplements again.
0: Are you the plaintiff or defendant in a lawsuit? Win your case without an attorney with Jurisdictionary, the affordable, easy to understand, four CD course that will show you how in 24 hours, step by step. If you have a lawyer, know what your lawyer should be doing. If you don't have a lawyer, know what you should do for yourself. Thousands have won with our step-by-step course, and now you can too. Jurisdictionary was created by a licensed attorney with 22 years of case-winning experience. Even if you're not in a lawsuit, you can learn what everyone should understand about the principles and practices that control our American courts. You'll receive our audio classroom, video seminar, tutorials. Forms for civil cases, pro se tactics, and much more. Please visit ruleoflawradio.com and click on the banner or call toll-free 866-LAW-EASY.
4: This is Live and Out Live on the Rule of Law Radio Network. I'm Gary Johnson. It is Sunday, November Fourteenth, and we are talking with Stefan Kinsella. He is, among other things, the director of the Center for the Study of Innovative Freedom. Uh, their website is the letter C, the number four, and the letters S I F dot O R G. Uh, Stefan, what is the Center for the Study of Innovative Freedom?
3: Well, this is. Think tank. I, I found it fairly recently, and it is dedicated towards the um, a private property libertarian oriented approach towards you know the ideas of innovation and things like this. Um, and it, it leads me to mention something to you that we talked about over the air uh, during the commercial, and that is you know one thing we need to emphasize to listeners is that. Um, a lot of the opponents of intellectual property over the last couple, two or three, four decades have been basically what we call dot communists or leftists. We need to emphasize that there is a growing strand of libertarians and people that are pro property, and we're against intellectual property because we're for property. In other words, we recognize that intellectual property is contrary to real property rights. So, from my point of view, the leftists and the traditional libertarians make a mistake. And that mistake is they both identify intellectual property with private property because they have the word in common. Mm -hmm. So they both bought into the propaganda of the state. Now, the the Randians and the pro-IP libertarians... They accept that dichotomy, and because they accept it, they are in favor of it, because they're in favor of private property. The leftists, because they're against private property and capitalism, they also accept that dichotomy, and they are against intellectual property because they're against private property. The correct position, in my view, is to be for private property rights and to be against intellectual property because it's a state creation that's artificial and that is undercuts uh, real property rights, so we rejected that co- we, we, you know we, we, address, we, we, do, we reject the equation you know we don't accept the idea that intellectual property is property just because the word property is part of its current name. and like I said, the original name was Monopoly, and this was not denied, but you know the the original status were a lot more honest than we have now. What do we call the, the, the War Department now? We call it the Department of Defense. Mm-hmm. It was originally called the Department of War. So you'll see that nowadays they're a lot more savvy about relabeling their statist um, programs and measures, and um, uh, it's a monopoly, and that's what they're in favor of, and, and I'm against it because I'm an advocate of property rights.
4: Uh, what does the uh, Center for the Study of Innovative Freedom do? I know you said it's, it's fairly newly organized, but what kind of things do you do?
3: So, what we're we're studying uh, the ways that innovation is uh, is uh, can can be fostered by uh, uh, the correct libertarian respect for property rights, because a myth has grown up that innovation is can only You know, uh, prosper in an environment of artificial monopoly rights fostered by the government, copyright and patent. And so we've been we we study we have we have a a really uh, internationally acclaimed board of experts on our board of advisors, uh, and these are just I mean fantastic people. Um, I mean, you you couldn't find anyone who was left out who should be there or or, uh, or who's there who shouldn't be there. It's just a great board of experts. So uh, we are coming up with position papers and you know uh, positions on the right government policies towards property rights as, and how it affects innovation.
4: All right. And again, the uh, website for the Center for the Study of Innovative Freedom is the letter C, the number four, and the letters S I F. ORG. Now, in addition to that, you wear many hats, uh, Stefan. Uh, you are the editor of Libertarian Papers. Uh, what is that?
3: Yeah, that's a journal I founded about uh, January of 19, uh, 2009, about a year ago, year and a half ago now, and um, it's sort of the successor to the Journal of Libertarian Studies. And it is an exclusively online journal. It's completely open source. In other words, every time we publish an article, we make it available in Word format and PDF format. And people, and and the license is uh, called Creative Commons uh, Attribution Only. So people are free to do whatever they want with it. And. Um, Uh, It's just been a great success, and i am enjoying doing it. It's a totally voluntary private effort on my part in association with the Mises Institute and with their backing, and um, it's great. Uh, I will tell you one thing that's interesting. Sometimes I get criticism, like, why do I use a Creative Commons uh, attribution-only license, Which, which says that if someone were to use one of our articles, they have to give credit to the author. In other words, they have to put the author's name on it. And the answer is because there is no way to get out of copyright. In other words, the state says that you have a copyright automatically in anything that you create, whether you want it or not. And they, they don't give you a way to get out of it. I mean, there, there basically is no way to make things public domain. You'll have laymen say, well, just put a notice on it saying I hereby disclaim copyright. Well, I can do that. But they won't have any effect legally. In other words, I can still sue someone for copywriting for, for copying my work. So what we do is we we work within the legal system, and we we grant the maximum license that the law allows us to grant, which is CCBY. We call it you know Creative Commons uh, Attribution Only, and it's it's a uh, it's just a great journal. I have a lot of great authors, and uh, I really enjoy that.
4: All right, and their website is libertarianpapers.org. That's correct. And uh, one other thing that you are involved with, uh, Stefan, is you uh, teach at the Mises Academy, uh, and Mises is spelled M-I-S-E-S. Uh, what is that? Yeah, this is a new, uh, fairly new initiative. And by the
2: way, Mises also has a brand new wiki that's competing with Wikipedia. It's called Wiki. I think it's
3: wiki.mises.org, but their, their academy is um, academy.mises.org, and they started about a year ago, nine months ago, and they offer courses. Now, if you go to mises.org, you will find hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands of hours um, or book links of articles and books and recordings for free. I mean, they offer everything for free because we're trying to get the word out there about the free market. Um, but we also offer these courses, which students are uh, allowed to sign up for, on different courses. And the one I'm giving right now is, is on intellectual property theory and history and law. And it is, uh, week number three starts tomorrow night. It is actually not too late to join up. You can watch the, the last two lectures uh, recorded. And it's for six weeks, for an hour and a half on Monday nights for six weeks. And it's, uh, you know, I, I give a speech for my study. And I have a, a PowerPoint and materials and uh, multimedia and uh, links, and there's a chat session from the students. And it, I, I really think it's the wave of the future. Um, it's not accredited, which means that every student that signs up is really interested in the topic, and they're good students, and they're intelligent, and they're smart. And, it's, it's uh, I, you know, I taught as an adjunct professor at, the, at a local law school, South Texas College of Law, about 10 years ago, and I didn't like it. Um, but this is a, a great teaching experience because every student w- really wants to be there.
4: All right, and again, that is academy.mises.org, and uh, Mises is spelled M-I-S-E-S. Yeah. Uh, we have just about three minutes left here, Stefan, and uh, I. I think it's fair to say that you are not a middle of the road or moderate libertarian, although you regularly describe yourself as a libertarian. You are an anarcho-capitalist. So, can you kind of uh, explain yourself uh, in the the political spectrum and the libertarian spectrum?
3: Well, I put it this way. I mean, I'm, I'm a moderate in the sense that I'm tolerant of other people as a libertarian. I mean, that's what libertarians are, we're tolerant. Um, and I'm all, always willing to accept any incremental improvement in the laws. You know, it's, it's not my way or the highway. But mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm reluctant to, in, in, to endorse a change in the law that would make things worse for some people. Um, and as for anarcho, um, I mean, my position as a libertarian is that I am against aggression. And I don't think that utilitarianism or consequentialism is the best defense of libertarian values. Um, It's not very principled. It's not very coherent. It's not very consistent with Austrian economic methodology, which I adhere to. I mean, for example, I don't think you can weigh and sum up and, 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 and add up and subtract people's utilities. And even if you could, I don't think it's moral to do so. Um, so I think utilitarianism has a lot of problems, but I think the biggest problem it has is that people that are utilitarians don't have a good case, you know, for, for their arguments. They don't have the evidence to back up their arguments. They'll say that we need patent laws for such and such reasons. reason, and if you say, "Well, how do you know?" they have no answer. So I would say that there's a multifaceted approach against any state grant of monopoly privilege. And IP law is just one of those. Um, as an anarchist, I am in favor of untrammeled individual rights and freedom and property rights. And anyone who's in favor of trammeling, as I think Rothbard or Hoppe once said, You know, I'm opposed to trammeling proper, property rights <laughs> and individual freedom. And I think All that's right. the way to go. I think we have to have a principled case, and you cannot rest...
4: On utilitarian concerns. All right, uh, Stefan Kinsella, a senior fellow at the Ludwig von Mises Institute, uh, editor of the Libertarian Papers, director of the Center for the Study of Innovative Freedom, uh, uh, and a lecturer at the Mises Academy. Thank you for being with us here at Live and Let Live. Thanks, Gary. Again, his uh, website is stefankinsella.com. That's S T E p-h-a-n-k-i-n-s-e-l-l-a dot c-o-m this has been Live and Let Live this program was directed by Deborah Stevens archives of this program are available at ruleoflawradio.com join us again next Sunday night at 9pm Eastern Standard Time I'm Gary Johnson, good night
2: This ever changed.